Get informed, get inspired, and get connected. CannabisRadio.com presents NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. The National Cannabis Industry Association is the only national trade organization representing the businesses of the legal cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice covers a range of topics, including the rapidly evolving political and policy changes that affect our industry, news and events of importance to cannabis professionals, and features on companies, individuals, and campaigns at the cutting edge of the cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice begins now. All right, we are at the Northeast Cannabis Business Conference here in Boston, and I'm the host of NCI's weekly podcast normally, but today it's been really exciting. I've had a dozen back-to-back interviews with NCIA members. It's nice to see everyone all in one place. It's great. (laughs) And you traveled here, Margo, from Michigan to join us here in Boston. Yes. How's your day been so far? So far, so good. Great. Have you had a chance to walk around and talk to people on the expo floor or visit any of the educational panels? Um, I just got off panel for social equity, winning an award-winning license, and I've had a lot of chance to interact. I've only been in one other session, Interstate Commerce, which immediately followed mine in the same room. Great. (laughs) Those are both really important topics for sure. Um, How did your panel go on social equity? What was was the, uh, the takeaway, you think? for most people who attended? Um, We got a lot of good questions at the end. Um, I think that a lot of information was clarified, number one, as far as what we were referring to when it came to social equity. Uh, It's always very important to define that nationally because it means something different in every place. Um, We highlighted a few best practices, um, including hiring minority people and people that are local to actually do your community benefits and planning because they have more knowledge as to what pockets need the resources the most. Um, Also, vendor opportunities, uh, mentorship, uh, and job opportunities coming along with social equity. Um, It was specifically for people who are either licensees or making policy in that particular space. Right. So you're a licensee in Michigan. No, I'm no, not. No, Perpetual no. Harvest. I'm, I am a um, consultant and a lobbyist. Okay. And, yes, and I've made a lot of spa- uh, policy in that space through either the Proposal 1 campaign. Uh, I currently am on our Attorney General's Marijuana Policy Work Group. So oh, great. So we're fleshing out the details of the policy that's already been created. Um, and also recently appointed to uh, the Minority Cannabis Business Association Board of Directors. Great. Yeah, I was yes. about to ask what your role is with the MCBA. We, we definitely work with that group, of course, yes. and, and support their work, and it's, it's a great partnership. What, you're on the board. Yes. And, and what are you focusing on? Continuing to raise money for the organization? Um, well, luckily, I don't have to do that much of that part. Uh, yeah, right? That's <laughs> um, the hard part. Right now, what I'm focusing on is our Economic Empowerment Summit that is coming up this June. Uh, it will be in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, Details will be released very soon. Um, It will be an excellent opportunity for people who are in this particular space that need education, resources, access to funding, uh, vending opportunities, all of the things that make an ecosystem for uh, our our legal and regulated industry. So we're really looking to balance the scales of 
large, well-funded producers and big companies with individuals who maybe don't have access to capital or it's more difficult to get the, the, the size of loans one might need to start their own business. Like, gosh, how many hoops are there just to like start your own business? Um, one thing that really offsets it too is not even just funding and things of that nature because that is extremely important. Um, it's usually information. So people who are, are intend to be licensees and are multi-state operators, they usually operate in spaces where they know the policy before it's made. Mm. Um, they are interacting to create the policy through lobbyists. They know the people that uh, create policy all the way down to a municipal level and they are able to kind of a little bit gauge uh, what spots are more viable than others? Uh, where should I try and lock down some real estate with a purchase agreement? They're very much so ahead of the curve. Even before you get to the part about resources, it's just because of information and knowledge. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to people who are the actual social equity applicants, usually the information comes to them after the policy has already been made, when it's time to apply for the license, and then they're almost left scrambling to catch up with people who have been very well vetting their plans for months, if not years, in advance. Gotcha. So, some, some people know how to play the game and know know the ins and outs and know the people. So they have a seat at the table before before other these equity applicants in, in yes. particular have have even heard what's going on. And the idea is to empower them to to have that seat at the table earlier on in this whole process. Yes, but if I get the the opportunity to lock down real estate before you announce where we're, we're going to be allow these types of businesses. And then the real estate increases usually like three to 600%. I mean, that makes a huge difference in your plan, uh, whether you have funding or not, that, that real estate is, is a hu usually a huge component. Um, also creating the policy in that particular space. Like it's great to have a compliant business, but the best way to have a compliant business is to make the policy that is going to govern your business. Absolutely makes sense. Yes. So Massachusetts did a pretty pretty decent job when they rolled out how they're going to divvy up licenses. They they set aside a certain percentage or number of licenses uh, that have to go to individuals from certain communities, people of color, minorities. How do we feel about how Massachusetts is doing that so far? I think that. Even though it's not just Massachusetts, it's it's nationally. Um, I think that even when the programs are extremely well-meaning and well-intended, they don't always translate to true diversity. Um, Illinois is a great example. Illinois had equity on day one. They, they weren't like a lot of other states that rolled the program out as an afterthought. And even with that equity on day one policy, um, there still was not a great deal of diversity in that particular market. I think that we're all still trying to figure out what the best practices are around this. But I think that one thing that is extremely important to always acknowledge, especially when you're referring to social equity, is that social equity was put into place because it's a, an acknowledgement that there were disproportionate arrest rates, that um, people were marginalized in a number of ways. And when you talk about what essentially equates to systematic racism, me snipping one string by giving you a social equity plan doesn't mean that you don't end up uh, entangled in the web of, of what that policy created. Um, I think that in my home state of Michigan, it, it's a very good example. Um, number one, Michigan is a non-affirmative action state, so we cannot... In, 
mention race in any policy. California is also a non-affirmative action state, but culturally in California, there's an expectation of diversity that does not exist necessarily naturally in other places. Um, And then even in creating that social equity policy that is not necessarily applicable to one race of people, um, you get into a, a situation where the individual municipalities have not communicated with the state. So some municipalities that might be urban or rural are a little bit lagging in creating the policy just because they don't know what to do. And now you end up in a situation where you're now competing for, for market share against people who've already establish their businesses. So there are a number of things to acknowledge when you're creating this policy and the fact that it's well-meaning and well-intended. Create the policy, put as many safeguards in place as possible, have checks and balances consistently. Like what does our program look like three months in? How much diversity do we have? What do we need to restructure to reach people that are from the communities that we want to. Um, I think one of the problems that we experience is that uh, our meetings for uh, social equity at a state level were the the uh, invitations were only sent to people who had already signed up for a state program, which very few people knew about. And then they were announcing the meetings at the last minute, and they were at ten o'clock in the morning. So most people were at work. So unless you're an entrepreneur, in order for you to even gain information, you have to lose money in order to get the knowledge. So there are a lot of trade-offs, and I think that we need to look at this by taking a step back. Um, To be honest with you, the best company that I've seen interact with social equity anywhere is Canopy Growth, and that's because they take a social good approach and that we're implementing a number of policies to integrate diversity, but we'll know we've really reached our point where we don't have to make a policy. Like when it just happens organically. Right. When people just naturally know to be here and feel comfortable coming to the room and participating into that space. And I don't think that any of us have a blueprint that leads us there directly. I think that we're still in a lot of trial and error when it comes to this. And we don't see a lot of diverse ownership um, due to things like holding costs even. The the lags in policy around uh, social equity essentially can potentially bankrupt even the most well-meaning person. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put the big celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Cheech and Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is Himping, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint the business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Trends and technology, processes and products. We cover these areas and more on the cutting edge of cannabis. Be informed from the latest initiators of new innovation. Learn about the latest breakthroughs and best practices in the cannabis and hemp industries. Better products, better infrastructure, and better sustainability. The Cutting Edge of Cannabis, consulted by the American Cannabis Company.
the National Cannabis Industry Association presents the 2020 Cannabis Caucus Event Series from March 10th through March 26th. Don't miss this exclusive opportunity for NCIA members to network, learn about regional issues from influential guest speakers, and get the latest news about NCIA's federal policy work and emerging topics. Look for this year's only tour of Cannabis Caucus events coming to Portland, Denver, St. Louis, Detroit, Chicago, Newark, Sacramento, and Los Angeles this March. Stay connected, get informed, and take action to protect our industry and your business. Register now for your complimentary tickets at thecannabisindustry.org slash events. Fetch your earbuds and stay tuned for some pure pet care conversation. Hi, it's Angela Ardolino with It's a Dog's Life, and I have Hernanda Umana joining me. We're just both so fascinated with how much we've learned since we've been in this pet industry and creating an all-natural product. Because it's a dog's life. I am a huge fan of my guest today, Dr. Bob Goldstein. I have, in my experience, not seen many natural substances produce the results that CBD is producing in the animals that we are testing on. It's a Dog's Life with Angela Ardolino, only on Cannabis Radio. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice, only on CannabisRadio.com. business owners, you, you have to be ready to go if you want this license, meaning yes. you, have, you have to buy the property, you have to have the machines, you have to kind of have everything all lined up and cross your fingers. Yes. So that's a huge risk. And then it might you might expect to open your doors for business in three months, but what if it takes a year? Yes. That costs money too. And I don't have that kind of extra money sitting around. You know yeah. Some I mean? people end up out of business before they even have the opportunity to actually own a legitimate business just due to things like holding costs. Um, and I think it's important to talk about all of those things around this that create a problem and not just putting a policy out there that's supposed to impact, be impactful, but may or may not be for various reasons depending on uh, the individual state. They are theories until you actually put them into practice, right? Yes. And then you see, okay, it's not actually working the way we thought, so make some changes, right? Well, this is not an industry for risk-averse people. I mean, Canopy Growth lost a billion dollars. Acreage mm. lost mm. tons of money. Um, sure. But there, there are losses across the board mm. um, for this particular industry. They just end up being more impactful for people that had limited resources to begin with. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the most difficult part about this industry is you have to mentally have the capacity to just like watch a pile of money burn um, because that that's what happens when the, the reason process. I don't gamble in Vegas at all. Or, I don't or cannabis. Like <laughs> wow. uh, it, it seems like, uh, you know, it's not rocket science. It's like it, it's cannabis and it's going to sell. Um, and it does sell, but there's so much regulation around that. And 
still competition from, you know, the traditional market. Um, there's not a lot of integration necessarily between the traditional market and uh, this new compliant market uh, to bring people that were either employees, uh, owners, and or customers of the traditional market into the current market. I think that you need that absorption to really be solid. And again, thinking of all the ways that, you know, we, we as an industry still have a lot of hurdles. We don't have safe access to banking. No. That's a big deal. Um, so you have to accommodate for having lots of cash. Yes. Um, we still have 280E in the IRS tax code. You cannot take normal tax business deductions. This is already a strain on the industry yes. on top of individuals who want to be in this industry but have limited resources. Yes. Uh, even the grow method is completely insane. The fact that I'm going to take what is essentially an agricultural commodity and grow it inside of a building that I need to light with the power of the sun. Um, it, it, if I said I was going to make an apple orchard inside of a warehouse, you would say, why? Right. And the same thing is true with cannabis. Like We're doing very unnatural things that are increasing cost and energy uh, tremendously. Right, right. And this is just impacting everybody, not even... Not even people of color, minorities yes. are impacted. I wonder also, you know, if I'm from uh, a community that's been impacted by the war on drugs for decades, yes. and I probably have grown up with people who were arrested for marijuana or maybe are sitting in jail right now, Yes. how confident am I going to be to be like, oh, I'll just go try to get a license and work in this industry. Oh, I might be a little nervous about it. That is true, and there, there have also been intentional campaigns, not necessarily on the part of people who are licensees, um, but I saw this during this in Michigan during our Proposal 1 campaign where um, Sam are healthy and productive. They go under different names under different states. Um, they did the same thing in, in New York, in New Jersey, and Connecticut, where they came and they paired with the NAACP, which is an organization that a lot of minority people trust sure. um, and their campaign around that the marketing and branding is that this is crack weed this is a return of the crack epidemic epidemic so that essentially it's touched us in a very um, in a very emotional place where people just naturally felt an aversion to the industry wow. because they, they didn't know on top of the fact that I tell you that you're going to need a couple million dollars. So the, the couple million dollars is step two. It's just that is this fully legal because it's not federally legal? Um, I don't know anyone who is a licensee. I don't know anything about the licensing process. All I know is that we're bringing legal weed into a place that yesterday it was illegal and now today supposedly it was illegal and now today it's legal. So there there is a need for conversation I think in most places between states and municipalities even before you get to legalization as to what that walk looks like. Um, you can use a couple of states as a model potentially that show that you know there is not an increase of a uh, drug epidemic associated with legalization. They just don't know um, because this is what is being marketed towards them and it's being communicated by people that they trust. Mm, got it. Yes. There's so much education that is still needed um, to regulators, to the average, the average citizen, as well as these communities that are apparently being lied to and like re-stigmatized cannabis in a new way. That's, that's, 
I didn't know about that. Thanks for yes. sharing that. Um, I went on the tour with the Michigan Regulatory Agency. Uh, I went to maybe like six cities in different parts of our states. Uh, when they came to explain the application process and legalization, and they did an amazing job, an amazing job for a, bureauc- a bureaucratic organization. But they explained it like regulators and not like entrepreneurs. Mm. Um, so I could say to you that you're going to need a fire plan, but I don't tell you that that fire plan is going to cost you thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars. And so the average person, when they left the seminars, I would ask them, "Well, how much do you think it costs to have a license?" And they would say forty thousand dollars. And I was like, "No, like there's this is like a layer cake. Like they've explained to you." what it costs at a state level for licensure. They've explained to you what the municipal cost will be. They have not broken down that cost walk of what your CPA is going to cost you, what your attorney is going to cost you, what an architect is going to cost you, right. what the real estate is going to cost you, um, the, how much it's going to cost you to even get rid of your trash because this is such a heavily regulated mm-hmm. industry that mm-hmm. you can't even just throw, mm-hmm. you can't just throw the trash away. Right. So people don't understand that cost walk. Um, and it can become extremely daunting. Yeah. Right. Yes. Right. More information up front, more real information would be helpful. Um, is there anything else, either the industry as a whole or maybe the, the regulators at the state level could be doing to, to really push this more? I think that... I'm not going to say more regulation because I think we've just completely <laughs> regulated just what was just a plant that grew out of the ground originally <laughs> into a completely unnatural state under every way imaginable. Um, I think that it's important for the licensees to understand that they have the opportunity to be impactful um, and that the places that ordinarily are more welcoming to these types of businesses are either inner cities or rural municipalities because they need the tax base Mm -hmm. and they need that revenue uh, for their individual municipality. Uh, It also happens to be a parallel that usually those are the places that were over-policed as well. Mm -hmm. So to make an effort to actually come into that community and be a responsible and respectful business owner um, by addressing what the concerns of the community are. Like, before you even get down to community benefits and spending money, just listening is extremely important. Got it. So, is there a piece of advice you would have for uh, an equity applicant other than whatever you think it's going to cost, multiply it by 10? (laughs) Um, What I would start off with any any, industry, applicant that is a social equity applicant is to find out where the licensees go in your particular state. Um, I had a licensee contact me through Facebook or a person who intended to be a licensee in Illinois. And I was speaking to this particular person and I was like, well, have you ever heard of NCIA or been to an NCIA conference or any other industry conference? Are you familiar with Benzinga and where people actually, you know, talk shop about money? And they weren't aware of those pillars of the industry. Mm. Uh, and, and those are extremely important for me to be able to walk through an expo center like this. If you can't make it to Las Vegas during MJ Biz, um, understandably, <laughs> to be able to see what is being offered in this particular space. What types of things do you need to have a compliant business? There are so many facets that you need to think about that you may or may not think about right down to who is your packaging, who's doing your point of sale, um, what 
tech is available to support this particular business. Uh, you cannot make a business plan without understanding those facets. Sure. And, and there's no need to reinvent the wheel. That, you're exactly right. That's one of the reasons NCI exists is to create this community of education and, and understanding of this advocacy that's happening nationally and at the state levels as well. And yeah, you can you can walk around this expo floor and see really cool technology and cool software and cool products that somebody who didn't know existed yes. would be like, wow, okay, really impressive. There's resources, there's knowledge that are available without people having to reinvent the wheel and start from scratch, right? Yes. Another piece of advice I would tell people all the time, like, this is almost like a gaming license. It's not like a driver's license. So don't mentally walk into it like, how am I going to get a license? You need to think about how am I going to build a team? Because a team is an absolute necessity for any person. If you are, uh, if you have resources, you can just hire a team. Uh, you might need to build your team organically if you don't have those resources and, and come into partnership and be able to negotiate what might consider, be considered as a smaller percentage of a, of a bigger piece of the pie. Gotcha. Yes. Good people, good information. Yeah. Join the community and, and don't feel like you're doing this alone for sure. Absolutely necessary. Yeah, great. So 10 years ago... When NCIA was formed, there weren't even 21-plus adult use states yet. It was still medical only. Mm -hmm. What were you doing 10 years ago? Um, 10 years ago, we did have legalization in my state, in Michigan, we, through ballot initiative. It was a caregiver model, slightly different than the medical seat to level, sell. Medical level, great. Mm -hmm. um, but 10 years ago, I was an entrepreneur. Uh, my ex-husband and I had a property preservation business. Um, I originally came from the automotive industry. Um, during that particular time, there was a downward spiral in the automotive industry, mm. and there was an increase in foreclosures in my state of Michigan. Mm. And so we went into foreclosure business, um, mm. and it, it, was, it worked well while it worked. Um, <laughs> um, but I had never conceptualized, I think, the industry as what it is today. I mean, I thought, logically speaking, that it was completely irrational to make a plant illegal um, in its natural state. Uh, but I, I just had not conceptualized it as an industry. And I think it took a long time for me to even be able to conceptualize it. It took a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. It took uh, a lot of exposure before I could conceptualize it for what it has become today. Sure. The, the amount of technology and advancement I see on this expo floor is pretty impressive. I, I, uh, I like to tell people that I've been a medical marijuana activist since 2003 and that I had no idea yes. that this <laughs> would ever happen. I thought maybe the most we would achieve in the United States was medical marijuana access for a certain number of conditions. This is this is cool, but like, wow, I, I never would have guessed that it would never. look like this. Never. <laughs> and, and there's plenty of hurdles and plenty of challenges, but it, I'm optimistic and seeing more members of Congress co-sponsor pro-cannabis legislation is a super good sign. And Safe Banking Act made it through the House last fall, sitting in the Senate. 
Hopefully we can get some movement there. It's a weird year, but um, so the the future is bright, if not complicated. <laughs> but uh, what do you see ten years into the future for this industry, having seen what you see now, or what do you hope to see? Deregulation. Um, yeah. <laughs> because, oh, yeah. <laughs> because a lot of the cost is associated with regulation, and that's what makes it completely unbearable. Way too um, I would predict that in the future, the price of cannabis will drop significantly, mm-hmm. um, significantly mm-hmm. through deregulation and technology, mm-hmm. um, I, and also through policy and treaty. So um, if there is a climate that is more acclimated with growing cannabis in a natural environment, um, then those are the places where it will naturally gravitate to. And people will consume all over just the way they do currently, um, but it will be more in alignment with what makes sense. Like, we grow oranges in Florida Mm -hmm. because it's sunny there. That's the best place to grow oranges. And that's the best place to grow oranges. And then we ship orange juice all over the United States. Right. You don't have to build an individual market for orange juice in every single state. Um, right. I think then that is completely asinine. Um, I think it was the only option that was given to many people yep. uh, to, to be able to get into uh, what is legal right now today. But I think that there's going to definitely be a walk back from that. I think a lot of deregulation is needed also. And, and the interstate commerce issue is, yes. it's it's popping this year. It, yes. Like, people are really talking about it. Um, you know, those those growers in Oregon really want to, they really want to get their, their cannabis to other people in other states. And, and, and traditionally, they have. That is the traditional market. Right. Um, and I think that sometimes there's a struggle between what is the current compliant market and the traditional market because we just don't acknowledge the fact that that traditional market is like a freight train. It has been going, 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 going for 80 years. It's mm-hmm. not going to stop on a dime. Right. Um, and people have purchase patterns, purchase histories, mm-hmm. and relationships that sometimes are neglected by the structure of government when you're just creating policy. Right. So. Right. Makes sense. Well, we'll see where we're at in 10 years. Yes. yes. I hope these comments age well. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we all we all have bright bright hopes for our industry. I mean, the the values of the plant we're trying to carry into this industry as much as possible. We're not trying to you know, uh, disregard the history. The history is part of what we're building. Yes. We have to acknowledge this as I like to say and have been saying since I started with NCIA. Sure, jump in the industry if you want, but you you better understand the history and you need to become an activist as well as an entrepreneur or business yes. owner. It comes with the territory. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining me here at thank the you. Northeast Cannabis Business Conference in Boston. And we'll be at uh, the Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, our seventh annual. It's our big summer show. We'll be in San Francisco this summer. I Looking forward there. to that. Yes. And then we'll be in Michigan um, for our Midwest, our first annual Midwest Cannabis Business Conference in August. Uh, so we're having a busy year. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much for your membership and for your work with MCBA as well. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, have a great evening. Thank you.
The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.